0: Hi, and welcome to Northampton Bible Church's podcast. We are glad that you're here today. If you'd like to learn more about Northampton Bible Church, you can check us out at nbchurchcf.org. You can also interact with us on social media at nbchurchcf. And now, here's today's message. Jumping into the book of John, uh, there's a couple things that I want to talk about right before we get to the book of John. And the first is a quote from a book that I hope will uh, maybe spawn some questions and uh, questions in our mind. And it says this. So in the book, The God Delusion, we're, we're going to get to John 19, I promise, but there's some precursor stuff that I want to talk about. In the book, The God Delusion, the leading atheist, Richard Dawkins asserts that faith opposes reason. He says that faith opposes reason. And calls faith a delusion, which he describes as a persistent false belief held in the face of strong contradictory evidence. And what I want to focus in on is that he calls faith a delusion and he says it opposes reason. So I ask this question to you is I ask is faith or should faith be blind? Should we, as people that follow Jesus, simply have and depend on complete and total blind faith? And I want you to think about that for a second. And I hope that maybe makes you wonder a little bit. Because this is not the first time this question has been posed to me. Somebody asked me this question once, um, and I didn't really know how to answer. And the answer is no. Somebody says it like this, and I thought this was really good, and I hope this is helpful. Many Christians use the term faith to mean blind faith rather than biblical faith. There is a huge difference between blind faith and biblical faith. There's a very large difference, and that's what we're going to talk about this morning with John 19, is the difference between blind faith and biblical faith. But the reality is, is Christianity itself does not demand blind faith. And the other reality is, is God does not demand blind faith. Jesus does not demand blind faith. And as we read in the book of John, John does not demand blind faith out of his readers. That blind faith is not necessarily biblical faith. We could prove this all the way back in the beginning of the Bible, talking about the children of Israel and talking about Moses and talking about God. Because in the book of Exodus, it tells us this. It says, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So, because they saw that, so the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. There's there's a little bit of a formula here that you're going to notice that follows its way through into what we're going to talk about this morning. They saw the great power that the Lord had. They saw that based on what God did in this time in Egypt. They saw that, and because they saw that, that evidence, so the people feared the Lord. They had a proper view of God because they saw the evidence that God gave them. They had a proper view of God. But not only did they have a proper view of God, they believed him. That because they saw and because they had a proper view of God, they believed what he said and they followed him. That God did not demand blind faith out of the children of Israel at this time. He gave them evidence of his power and evidence of who he was and then showed them and then because of that they had a proper view of god and they believed you got to remember that because we're going to talk about that here in a few minutes as we kind of move along i'm also getting really warm up here it's warm uh a sweater was not a wise choice um but i wear a sweater every time i talk so uh they, sweaters are the best uh and if you joe you'll say sweater vests are the best there's an age gap Um. (laughs) Uh, Somebody else says it like this, and I think this will be helpful too As we kind of dive into John 19 Somebody says this, he said, faith isn't fueled by fantasy Faith is informed by revelation If you've been with us through the book of John There's a reality to this word And it'll be even more so today if you haven't been with us the entire time The faith is informed by revelation And we don't believe on Jesus because we're gullible The people that believe and follow Jesus don't believe and follow simply because they're gullible people willing to have blind faith in something with no evidence. And John knew this. And John crafts the book of John in such a way that his reader will see and will understand this so that they might believe. That's also a theme that's carried through the book of John. We believe on Jesus because God has revealed himself to us ultimately in a divine way in the person of Jesus. That God revealed himself to us in the person of Jesus throughout the book of John. So, I say all of that to bring us to well, I went one too far. To bring us to John 19. I say all that to bring us back up to speed into John chapter 19. And before we really dive into John 19, we have to remember kind of where we left off with Jesus uh, giving himself up. And now he's kind of been bounced back and forth in different courts. And he's going to be soon to be crucified because we know the story. And now, as we jump into chapter 19, the, the crucifixion chapter, something we talk about around Easter time. And I imagine we'll talk about it more during Easter time, too. But we're going to jump into the beginning to kind of set the stage for where we're going. So in verse number 1 of John 19, we have this guy named Pilate that's kind of in charge of what's going on. It says, then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, which basically means they took Jesus and they went out and basically beat him in public in order to humiliate him in front of the people, in order to try and appease the angry mob of people that were outside of the court where Pilate was and were demanding Jesus be punished and put to death. And this is kind of what happens. It says, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and they put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. All of this ultimately to try and humiliate and to mock Jesus in front of the crowds of people. And they continue this and they came to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Now they're not being serious. They're being. Facetious, there's a big word, they're being facetious. And uh, they're they're mocking Jesus in this time. It says, and they struck him with their hands. This is setting the stage as we pick up where we left off last week with chapter 18. That Jesus is now being beaten and humiliated in public in order to appease the people by Pilate. And it says, Pilate went out again and said to them, he's talking to the people, he says, see, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Pilate says, look, I took him and he's been beat, he's been humiliated, I'm bringing him back out because I find no fault in him. And he's basically saying, I hope this appeases you. And we soon find out that it doesn't because only two verses later, all the people are crying out to crucify him, crucify him because they want him dead. And it wasn't enough. So Pilate, out of fear of the people, and not only fear of the people, but also fear of Caesar, he goes through with it. And we pick up in verses 16 and 17 kind of what happens. It says, so he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to, be, to a place called the place of a skull, which is in Aramaic called Galgatha. So this is where this brings us all the way up to speed to where we're kind of start and dive in today. That they're taking Jesus to be crucified. This is something that within Christianity is talked about a lot. We talk about the cross and so we talk about the crucifixion, and there's a reason for it. Reason that we'll talk about this morning. But what I want to talk about in the beginning here is this word called prophecy. Now, when we say this word. A lot of people think a whole lot of different things. This is a very, I'm going to say a very controversial word, at least in our modern day society, that your brain can go to a, a hundred different topics with a hundred different ideas when it comes to prophecy. But we're going to boil it down, at least for this morning, into one kind of concise definition for what we're going to talk about, which is promises, Promises that were made divinely by God that are now in this story that we're going to talk about been kept and been fulfilled. So promises that God made that God kept ultimately in order to prove that God is true and God is powerful. Kind of going back to the same formula in Exodus where they saw God's power so they had a proper view of God and they they had faith and they believed. It's kind of the the same thing. So, in the story of the crucifixion, there are promises that were made that John very specifically calls out for a reason. And we're going to look at a couple of those. The first promise and the first prophecy that's talked about is with Jesus' garments. That during the crucifixion, it says, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts one part for each soldier and also his tunic. But there's there's an issue. The tunic was seamless. It's all one piece. It's it's woven in one piece from top to bottom. So this presents a problem you can't very easily just divide that up amongst four people. So they said one to another, let us not tear it, but let us cast lots to see whose it shall be. So basically what they're going to do is they're going to draw straws. It's kind of what they're going to they're draw straws to see who gets to take this home as this prize. This is Jesus of Nazareth, this famous teacher and rabbi that walked around claiming that he was God. We're going to draw straws to see who gets to take home a piece of his clothing. It says, and John makes this very clear, and we'll talk about this as we go, that this was to fulfill scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they did cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. And this has a crazy connection to something that was taught about a thousand years in the past by somebody named David. Then in Psalm chapter 22, which is a really cool chapter in and of itself, that if you read Psalm 22 and read the crucifixion story in the gospels in John 19 and then in the other gospels, it's a crazy mirror image of the things that kind of take place, which is really cool, which you can read on your own time because we don't have forever for me to stand up here and talk about it. But in this specific spot in psalm 22 this is what david talks about he says for dogs encompass me a company of evildoers they encircle me and they have pierced my hands and feet they divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots you're like oh cool they kind of says the same thing but you have to understand is this was written a thousand years before john 19 ever took place that God divinely promised certain things were gonna happen with the Messiah, and that's what's happening. But that's not the only one that we're gonna talk about. There's, there's another one. If you keep going in the story, it says, after this, Jesus, knowing that all is now finished, he said to fulfill the scriptures, there's that cool phrase again that pops up again. This is John. John says, hey, I'm gonna put this in because there's a purpose and a reason for what I'm saying. Uh, to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. So basically what they do is take a sponge and they soak up the wine, they put it on a stick and they lift it up to Jesus on the cross, this sour wine. Um, and when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. It says he bowed his head and he gave up the Spirit. But also, if you rewind to the book of Psalms, not in 22, but in chapter, in Psalm 69, it says, they gave me poison for food and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. It's it's yet again another promise that was made a thousand years before that is now being fulfilled in the person of Jesus in John 19. And what you have to understand is John is including these things for a reason, for a purpose to highlight God's power so that you might know that what he says is true and that you might believe. One author puts it like this. He says, John is zealous to help his reader understand that what is happening on the cross was not an accident of history. It's not simply something that just happened in history, but there's a purpose and a reason behind it that it came to pass through the invisible hand of a divine God, that God is orchestrating the things that happen. And John says, I'm going to highlight these things that happened in history a thousand years before that were promised that are now coming to fulfillment. I'm going to highlight these so that the people that read this will understand that God is divinely at work in what's happening in John 19 in the person of Jesus. There's two more. I promise we're we're moving to something. Uh, As we jump into the next one, we're actually going to go forward and then back because John says something to help us kind of understand what's going on. He says in verse 36, he says, for these things took place. Here's that phrase again to prove what I'm saying. That scripture might be fulfilled that John is saying, these things are happening, and I'm writing these things to you, and I'm writing these things on paper so that the readers will understand that what is happening in the person of Jesus is fulfilling the scripture that has been written about a thousand years in the past to fulfill so that you understand that this really is God in human flesh. And it says that none of his bones will be broken. So if we rewind what just happened in John uh, 19, it says, since it was the day of preparation, which is basically the day before the Sabbath day, which you're not, you're not supposed to do anything on the Sabbath day, so it's the day of preparation for that day, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So basically... They want them to go through and and break the legs of the people that are on the cross so that they'll die faster. And this is really gruesome for a Sunday morning. Um, So that's exactly what happened. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other, so the other two people that were crucified, who had been crucified with him. But then they get to Jesus, and this is where things change a little bit. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead, and they did not break his legs. And if we rewind back to what John is referring to in the scriptures, in Psalm 34, it says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivered him out of them all. He kept all his bones, not one of them is broken. That these were things that were talked about, once again, I'm going to say this again, a thousand years in the past are now being fulfilled in the person of Jesus to prove that God is divinely at work in this moment, in this time. And then there's one more, I promise, just one more of these. Um, In the very next verse So they don't break his legs But they want to make sure that he's dead So But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear And at once there came out blood and water This is also proving that Jesus really was a human being And that he really was dead And that it's not some trickery But he he really was dead And he really was a human being He's God in the form of a human being And if we rewind not to the book of Psalms, but to another prophet in the Old Testament, Zechariah. Zechariah says this, really it's God saying this in the book of Zechariah. He says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one that mourns for an only child and weep bitterly for him as one who weeps over a firstborn. Now, there's two things to notice in this verse that are kind of cool. The first being, obviously, once again, another fulfilled promise of fulfilled prophecy proving that Jesus really was who he said he was. But also, kind of connecting back to other things that we talked about in the book of John, is that as God is speaking, God is referring to himself, but also to Jesus, both as the same person. Because he says, and I will pour out on the house of David, as they look on me, talking about Jesus on the cross. But then he says, him whom they have pierced. He's referring to all of them as the same, further proving that Jesus and God are the, the same. So all of these things are happening, and John is highlighting all of these things through the story for a reason and for a purpose. And he reveals that purpose in the next verse. That John really kind of tips his heart in John 19 to, to really give his reader and say, Look, this is why I'm giving you these details. This is why I keep saying, for the, so the scripture will be fulfilled. In John nineteen thirty five, John reveals his heart. And reveals why he's writing what he's writing. And this is what he says. He says, he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth. That sounds oddly familiar, similar to Exodus, that they saw what he did, they had a right view of him, and they believed that it was true. And then this is this, this purpose that John has kept since the beginning of the book of John, that this has been the point in all of these chapters that he has wrote about Jesus, that this was the point, that you also may believe. That, G, that John is writing all of this and all of these gruesome details in the crucifixion and tying them all back to all these other things so that you might believe that what was said was true and that your response the only response that you might have is faith. But this begs the question, faith in what? Faith in what? We can say that we have faith, but faith in what? That's the question. A lot of people would say they have faith, whether it be biblical faith or blind faith, but faith in what? In as people that follow Jesus, our faith should ultimately be rooted in the finished work of Jesus. Now, this is extremely important as you walk out your life as somebody that follows Jesus and as you have a right view of God. Because how you view this will determine how you view God. So, in we're going to rewind to verse 30 really quick. I know we talked about this, but we're going to talk about it one more time. So when they gave him the sour wine, Jesus says this phrase. He says, it is finished what is finished? You have to ask questions when you read the Bible. You have to ask questions. Uh, Joe surprised me with a question this morning and threw me off guard. If you watched the prayer chair, I was thrown off by a question. But anyways, you have to ask questions as you read the Bible. He says, it is finished. What is he talking about? What is finished? In order to understand what is finished, because John is writing this, John has a plan as he writes this. He doesn't just aimlessly write down things. He has a plan as he writes this entire thing. You can see this underlying theme of so that they might believe. And he had a plan when he writes down the words of Jesus that it is finished, John knew exactly what he was referring to. And that's found all the way back in chapter one, and we talked about this back in the beginning, that chapter one in verse 29, It says, the next day he saw Jesus coming towards him. This is kind of when Jesus comes on the scene in the book of John. And John is very clear about the purpose of Jesus from the very beginning when Jesus shows up in the book of John. And the purpose of Jesus in the book of John was this. He saw him coming towards him and he said, behold, the Lamb of God, which holds a whole lot of context in the Old Testament that we don't exactly have time to dive into. Behold, the Lamb of God, but this is the point who takes away the sin of the world. The, the purpose of Jesus and the purpose of his life and the purpose of the last 19 chapters is so that we might believe that this was Jesus' purpose and so that we might believe that he really was God and that he really did die and he really did, to tell you more of the story, he really does rise again later on. We'll talk about that later. Um, but this was the point. And when Jesus said, it is finished, Jesus says, This was the point. This is why I was here. You see, Jesus' work as sin-bearer and Savior is completed when he lays down his life on the cross. The sacrificial offering of his life and his soon resurrection completes his divine rescue mission. That it's done it's completed that in Jesus' death and ultimately his soon resurrection fully completes what he came to do and fully completes the salvation that he offers us and fully completes this this way that we can have a relationship with God through Jesus that it's done and it's completed and this is what i mean when we understand that when we have a proper view of that and when we understand that the work of salvation is complete then also under, then hang on then we'll also understand that we can do nothing absolutely nothing to ever earn it to keep it or to maintain it because it's done That you, in and of yourself, you can do nothing to earn the salvation that Jesus has purchased for you. That in his death and in his resurrection, he fully purchases your salvation and your freedom. And there's nothing that you can do to earn that. All you can do is simply accept it by faith. And once you have it, there's nothing that you can do to keep it. That it's not dependent on you to do more good things in order to maintain, in order to keep the salvation that he freely offers you. And that you have to understand that you can't maintain it, but it's fully and completely done. And the reality is, is when we understand that, when we understand that it's done and there's nothing that we can do, we only have one response left, faith. That's the only response we have left is to fully trust in the finished work that he has completed. That we understand it and we say, I get it and I have faith and I fully trust in this and no longer myself to try to maintain and to try to do enough good things to merit favor with God. And this is the thing, but what we do oftentimes is we try to add to it. We may believe it, but then we say, well, I'm going to add some to it. And the reality is, is the moment you stop believing in the finished work of Jesus and you begin to add to it for your salvation, you say, well, I believe that. I'm just going to add these good works because I'm going to try to really appease God. The moment you stop believing in that is the moment you begin to work for it. It's something like this. A lot of times, I don't know if, it depends, I guess, on your age demographic. I, at least for my age, I remember when I was 16, I was 16. I got this, This I would call it a beater car, it was a BMW, but uh, it was like 700 bucks and uh, it didn't really run and it was a bunch of different colors. Jeff is laughing at me back there because he knows I've had a lot of just random cars. But it was a bunch of different colors and everything else. But looking back now, it was a really kind of a cool car. Like it was interesting. Um, it was old, it was really old. Um, worked on it and I fixed it. But, I was still in this, like, 16, 17-year-old mindset. So I would go to, like, auto parts store, and I'm like, where's the neon lights and the cool steering wheel covers? And what about these plastic hood scoops? And I look back now at a car that was pretty cool, pretty nice. I ended up painting it, and I did some stuff to it. But then I got, like, a cheap, weird Amazon steering wheel for it that just didn't match. I put these weird seats in it. And I took something that... This is No illustration is perfect. It wasn't perfect, but to some extent, it was a good kind of perfect thing, and I began to try to add to it, and in adding to it, I really kind of cheapened it, and I made it look worse, and a lot, you know, when you put a plastic hood scoop on something that's fairly nice, you you instantly cheapen it. This $10 plastic hood scoop on a relatively nice car, you, you cheapen it. But that, you laugh at that, but that's what we do with Jesus. We're like, Jesus, I get it. You've done this for me. This is awesome. I can't earn it, but let me add to it. Let me add my $10 oat scoop to it, because I think this is going to make it better. And Jesus says, no, I've done it. It's complete. It's done. Your only response should be faith. And as we kind of wind all this back down, I want to leave you with this that the lens by which we view God is completely rooted in how we understand what Jesus did on the cross. That how you understand what Jesus did in John 19 and how you understand what Jesus did on the cross will radically change how you view and the lens by which you view God. And the lens by which you view God will ultimately determine how you walk out your life. That's what it will determine. So, as you walk out of here today... What do you do different? What do you change about your life? And it's very simple. It's so simple, I don't even have a slide for it. I have a slide for everything else, but I don't have one for this, because it's so simple. You live as if it were true, which is by the very definition, faith. You walk and you live by faith as if what Jesus said was actually true. And that will radically transform The way that you live. So I hope as you reflect on what was talked about, and you reflect on your own life, and you really evaluate, do I live as if what Jesus says is true? Have I had even a moment in my life where I said, hey, you know what? I believe that, and I'm going to choose by faith to believe that and walk that out, and I'm going to choose to follow Jesus. Have you had a moment like that in your life?